Jenny, thank you very much indeed. And a very good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming along tonight. I've been so looking forward to this sermon. It's my one chance uh, to have a great revelation because we're away uh, for the next couple of weeks. So I'm delighted uh, to be with you. Let me start by asking a question. Uh, what are the, are the virtues and the gifts and the skills that you think you need uh, to keep going in your Christian life? What are, the, what are the things uh, that you need will allow you to keep going one year, two year, uh, five years, ten years, 20, 30, 40, 50, however long it is uh, that you have? What will you, what will you need to keep you uh, walking closely with God uh, for all the years that you have left uh, with all the possible things that might come your way? We learn a really interesting answer to this in Revelation, and it comes in what, if, if, if it was televised, if Revelation was televised, I think it would be a fantastic animation, wouldn't it? Because you, you, you couldn't really do justice to everything else without that. Um, but, you know, in, in most TV shows nowadays, there was, a, there was a moment where one of the lead characters, uh, Miranda used to do this a lot, turns to the camera and says something right to the camera. So, so everything's been going on and the action's been unfolding and a character will turn to the camera and will say something very specifically uh, to the audience. And, and that's in a sense breaking uh, what's going on here and they're just talking directly to us. Uh, Miranda used to do it sort of for comic effect, uh, but there are other ways in which that works too. And if you look, uh, if you've got your Bibles uh, with you, uh, in Revelation 13, which is sort of halfway through what Jenny was reading, which is on page 1242, of our Bibles. Uh, John's been des describing all this stuff, dragons, beasts, all these things happening, and then suddenly he turns directly to us at the end of chapter 13. And he simply says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. So for John, writing this amazing uh, book, the things that we need to keep going in the world that we live in are patient endurance and faithfulness. And it may be that your heart sinks just a little bit at that uh, because actually if we're going to need patient endurance and faithfulness, things are going to be hard because you don't need to be patiently enduring and you don't need to be faithful when things are easy. And he's going to unpack uh, what that means. Uh, tonight, we've, we've sort of cherry-picked a couple of passages, but Brian, who pulled all of this, this together, has given us Revelation 12, 13, and 14. And those bits together underline why we need patient endurance and faithfulness and how we can cultivate it. And so you need to sort of strap yourself in because this is going to be a really speedy overview. I would definitely recommend rereading the entirety of these three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, when you get home. But we're going to have dragons. We're going to have multi-headed beasts. We're going to have a whole zoo full of animals. We're going have a new word that I bet nobody here knows, and we're going to have a subset of arithmetic called Revelation Maths. So strap yourselves in, here we go. In Revelation 12 and 13, we meet essentially four versions of the same story, and that story is our story, 
or we might call it his story. Some of the characters change, uh, the, as does the viewpoint of the person telling the story, but each, verse, each version of these four stories is reminding us that as Christians, we are caught up in this great big drama, as Claire has said, a drama that will require every drop of patient endurance and faithfulness that we have. We're going to focus on the first of those four, which Jenny read for us, which comes in Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6. Each of these stories is like a widescreen, big picture retelling of the history of our world. But it has a particular focus. It has a focus on what it is like to live in the here and now, looking back to one thing and looking forward to another. So the thing that we're looking back to is Jesus, the kind of the, the epicenter of history. In particular, in Revelation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So that, that has happened. So we're here. That has happened here. The thing that we're looking forward to is the new heaven and the new earth. And so all of these four stories are about what it's like to live in the time that started here and finishes here. And so that's the focus of these stories. As always with Revelation, knowing our Old Testament will really help. The first part of Revelation 12, if you look at it again, is actually a sort of a combination of a nightmare or a horror film uh, compared with what we've done before. Uh, here's a summary. We have a pregnant woman who's racked with labor pains. She is chased by a seven-headed, ten-horned red dragon, which is desperately trying to eat the child that she is about to give birth to. Uh, so it, it's not kind of, you know, it's not Sunday school stuff, is it? You know, you're not going to do this at, with scramblers next week. Uh, the child is then snatched to safety, uh, and the woman is cared for in the desert for a very, very precise length of time, 1,260 days. And you may be thinking, what on earth is going on? Let's see if we can answer that question. You have to think back to Israel's escape from Egypt. So in Revelation 12 that Jenny read for us, the woman, the pregnant woman who's running away, that is Israel. That is the people of God. Uh, the clues are in the fact that this woman is adorned, if you remember, with the sun and the moon and 12 stars around her head. Uh, if you know your Old Testament, remember back to Joseph and the dream that he had with all of the people and the, the, st the stars and the moon bowing down to him. Uh, so that is Israel. Israel was chased out of Egypt in the Old Testament by a murderous and a sadistic regime who were wanting to wipe them out completely. That's the dragon, that regime, like the empires of Daniel's day, is pictured as a serpent or a dragon, like a, a, a force of evil. But Israel then has a child, and uh, we know who the child is, right? Uh, the child, the clue is uh, a male child who will rule all of the nations. So the child that the woman gives birth to is Jesus. Israel becomes, after the birth of Jesus, the church, the new Israel, the bearer of the new covenant. The church is still in danger. 
the church is still on the run for a set period of time. And that's the period of time that we're living in. Jesus has ascended and gone back to heaven. The new heaven and the new earth hasn't yet come. So for this 1,260 days, the church is like the woman who is hiding in the desert. And that is the point of the story. That's why Christians need patience, endurance, and faithfulness, because things are hard. The next three chunks of Revelation are all variations on this colorful and dense and vivid summary of Bible time. We, one version is that we see Michael and all of his angels. They fight and they overcome the dragon who is hurled to the earth and yet still pursues the woman. And so in both of these, we get this sense that it actually really makes sense of Christian experience. And that is that we can look back at the cross and know that that was a time of victory, know that that was the time when our forgiveness is sorted by Jesus on the cross. And we know that we can look forward, either when we die or when Jesus comes with the new heaven and the new earth, to the time when evil and the activity of evil and the work of the devil in our uh, world completely ceases. But we live in this in-between time. And it's neither one nor the other. Of course, we look back with thanks and gratitude at the cross, but none of us, could we, could say... All evil has gone from our world and that everything is perfect and everything is good now. There is still evil in our world. There is still demonstrable, horrible evil in our world. And John explains that in, his, in these amazing pictures with this sense uh, that uh, the, the dragon has been chucked out of heaven but is still rampaging the earth at trying to kill the church. It, it's a picture of what we're experiencing now. Then we see a beast that emerges from the sea. Uh, the beast is blasphemous. The beast demands worship, uh, wages war against God's holy people. Then we see a beast from the earth uh, with all the authority of the first beast enslaving and corrupting the world. These are all the same big stories. It's about Christian experience in the here and now. And for John's readers, it is Rome, imperial Rome, with all of its pride and brutality and intolerance that is clearly in view. So for, for John and his readers, the beast, the dragon, the serpent, it's all the same. It's all Rome. Rome is trying to kill at the young church, trying to squeeze at the life out of it. The church, on the other hand, we see the church as being vulnerable. We see the church's fear running for their lives, hiding in the desert. One of the great values of this being such vivid and apocalyptic writing is that it stands the test of time to remind us that, of course, imperial Rome has gone, it is no more, but it's been replaced by other governments, by other states that are just as brutal and just as ready to usurp God's power, just as ready to claim for themselves what could only be given to God. Human power is so easily corrupted, so easily tempted to injustice and to blasphemy. 
and have been states and governments and powers all the way through human history that have hated God's people and have hated the church and in a sense have been taken over or possessed by the force that is behind all evil in our world, the force of the Satan, the accuser, uh, the devil who is against us. So part of our patient endurance and faithfulness is to stand up to governments. That's part of what it means for us to be patiently enduring and faithful. Because there will be times, uh, most governments should be operating under God's authority. That's the way that God set up the world. But many states decide to steal God's authority for themselves. And in those moments, Christians will have to do at least one or maybe two things. One, they will have to endure because there are states that hate Christian people. They hate Jesus. They hate what we stand for. And we'll have to be faithful because those states and those powers will want to squeeze the life out of the church and will not want Christians or churches to be acting in compassion or for justice or to be caring for those who are weakest and most vulnerable in our world. We could focus, for instance, uh, on uh, the uh, 360 million Christians in the world who are still actively and daily persecuted by their governments for being Christians. That is one in seven Christians. So we were all the Christians in the world. One in seven of us would be actively, on a regular basis, persecuted for our faith. Think about uh, Qatar, which is getting ready to uh, host the World Cup in December. Qatar is ranked as the 18th most dangerous place to be a Christian in the whole world. Uh, And uh, many of the Christians in Qatar are migrant workers uh, who are allowed a very limited uh, freedom uh, to worship and to share their faith. But if you are a Qatari, it's completely different. It is illegal in Qatar to become a Christian or to change your religion. If you're a man and you become a Christian, you'll probably be put in prison. If you're a woman, you'll be put under house arrest. The top 20 most dangerous countries to be a Christian in the world uh, have different religious outlooks. Some are atheists, like North Korea or China. Uh, Some are Muslim, uh, like uh, Somalia or Afghanistan. Uh, Some are Hindu, like uh, India. But what is common to all of those is that there is a government that wants to take all the power for itself and wants to persecute people who do not agree or share with that view. So our sisters and brothers in Qatar uh, need to learn and hear uh, that they will have to have patient endurance and faithfulness. And they will need to know that the time of their suffering and humiliation, this time in which they live now, after the resurrection, before the new heaven and the new earth, that that time is going to come to an end. It's not going to be forever. And they need to know that Jesus will carry the scars of his suffering and his humiliation for all time.
Now, we're going to have a short interlude, and it's going to be about maths. So please do not adjust your set. This stuff is really interesting. Numbers are really, really important in Revelation, and they are part of its rich symbolic tapestry. And they're just as important as all the dragons and the beasts and everything else. So here is, if you're no good at maths, you are exactly like me, but here's how to understand the maths in Revelation. Square numbers, think of a square. 12 by 12 is a square. Square numbers in Revelation are good numbers. Square numbers are all about God and his people. So, for instance, we read in Revelation quite a few times that the people in heaven are one of two things. They're either a vast throng beyond all numbering. That, in a sense, is, is the description of heaven, that you can't count the people in heaven because there are so many, a vast throng, or... There are 144,000 of them. There's one or the other. Now, 144,000 is a symbolic number. It's 12 by 12 with three noughts on the end of it. Why 12? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. But now, in heaven, there are 12 lots of 12 to, to tell us the fact that heaven will be the most amazing, multicultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic place on the earth, which is bad news for people who don't like other races, because heaven will be full of people from every tribe and tongue. And so that number, 144,000, is a symbolic number. There's not a guy in heaven with a little iPad checking off, you know, and getting to 139,999 and going, sorry, you're the last one in. After that, no one can come. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, this is your great anxiety in life because Jehovah's Witnesses are told that that number is literal. And so therefore, there are only 144,000 people in heaven. And so you can't believe in grace if you're a Jehovah's Witness because you think, well... If it's grace alone that gets me to heaven, there's too many people. That 144,000 is symbolic. It's a big round number of totality that says all the people from the four corners of the earth are going to be drawn together. That's square numbers. There are also, I didn't even know this really existed, there are rectangular numbers in Revelation. The most important one is 1,260. Now, 1,260 is three and a half years. Three and a half years is half of seven. So those numbers are used to talk about this time that we live in, this in-between time. It's incomplete, just like half is incomplete compared to a whole. Three and a half is incomplete compared to seven. So when you hear three and a half or 1,260 in Revelation, it's not supposed to be a literal number of days. It's a description of this now but not yet time in which we live, this incomplete moment in which we live. The third kind of number in Revelation is a triangular number. And for triangular numbers, I want you to think back to the last time you played snooker or pool. When you set the balls up on the table, you get the triangle, don't you, out of the thing, and you put it on the table and you fill it with balls. And you have one ball in the first row, two in the second, three in the third, four in the fourth, and so on. 
If you kept doing that with a really big snooker table or really small balls, and you got to 36 lines of balls, you would have 666 balls. So 666 is a triangular number because it, can be, because it, it follows this pattern, one, two, three, four, and so on. If you don't believe me, get a piece of paper afterwards and you can try it. Now, 666 comes in Revelation 13, if you want to look at right at the end of the chapter. 666, as you may have heard before, is, uh, is given to us as the number of the beast. Now, the most important thing to say about 666 is that it is incomplete because it is not 777. In the Bible, 7 is the perfect number. It's the number of totality. So at the beginning of Revelation, we have seven churches, which in a sense represents all of the churches. There were many more than seven churches when uh, John was writing this letter, but he chooses seven as a representative of all of them. So 777 is like the best number, because it's three sevens, and 666 is kind of looks a little bit like 77, but actually it's not 777 at all. And that's what uh, it is. Uh, so in Hebrew, the word for seven and the word for Sunday is the same. That word is Shabbat, uh, the day that God rested. So that's why uh, that word, uh, the number seven, is so important and is valued so highly. So when we read 666 is the number of the beast, that is mostly and most importantly saying that just as there are symbolically 144,000 worshippers, that the beast, the, 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 the sort of devil-inspired powers of the world that stand against God, that they are symbolized and summarized by this number 666. If you take even a tiny bit of time and go online, you will find the craziest stuff about this. But let me spare you that trouble. In, in recent times, these are the people who have been identified as the beast 666 in Revelation. They include the United Nations, some but not all US presidents, the European Union, the use of barcodes, Martin Luther, the reformer, quite a few of the popes, Napoleon, and more recently, all contactless debit cards. So all of those things have been identified as the beast and uh, through the number 666. That has given birth to today's new word for you to drop politely into conversation over the next couple of days. Here's the word. The word this is a word that means the fear of the number 666. And that word is hexakoisi, hexaconta, hexaphobia. And that is the fear of the number 666. There you go. You can make a case that John did indeed have one particular individual in mind when he used 666 as the number of the beast. He may have had Emperor Nero in mind, who certainly was an emperor towards the end of the first century who was persecuting Christians, and it may be that he used 666 as a code word. But in order to establish that, what you have to do is you have to take the letters that it was written in in Greek, and change those to Hebrew letters, and then give each of those Hebrew letters a numerical value, and that can get you to 666, but it's not by any means certain. Or it could just be that that number, 666, is part of the multicolored symbolism 
of Revelation's apocalyptic world. It's a numerical signal of human, human power taking more than it deserves and more than it can handle. So I would really urge you, there are some Christians who just get ever so upset about that number 666 as though somehow it is inherently evil. It isn't. It's just used in Revelation as a symbol of a defiance against God and possibly, but only possibly, to identify one particular person at the Emperor Nero. But actually the whole point of this, of this, of this passage that we've been in is that actually um, evil, particularly as expressed in power through governments and armies, evil continues to try and strangle and kill the church. And in many places today, that is a reality. So at the heart of this passage is John's direct words, like as we would understand them, words to camera, right in the middle of this amazing play that is happening before us. This calls for the patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. There will be moments where we have to patiently endure because of the hope that we have. There will be moments where we have to choose, am I going to be faithful? Am I going to stand tall for Christ? Am I going to be true to what Jesus has told me and what Jesus wants me to be in the world? Or am I going to conform? Am I going to quietly disappear into the background? And at times of our lives, those two things are always going to be real. Why? Because we are still a people in the wilderness. We are scattered amongst the tribes and the peoples and the nations with human powers thirsty to stand against the people of Jesus and the compassion and the justice we bring. So as we finish, how? How do we develop patient endurance and faithfulness? Well, one of the ways, and the one that is highlighted here, is worship. Worship is how we do this. Worship of all kinds is really, really important. Scattered as we are, we are also able to come together and peek into the throne room of heaven. And our worship now, in all of its forms, whether it's here together as a community, whether it's walking by the river at the start of the day, whether it's sitting in bed listening to Lectio 365, whether it's out for a run with some worship music in your ears. Our worship now is two things. It is both wholehearted, but it's also anticipatory because we're living in this time. The new heaven and the new earth hasn't come yet, but we're living in this time, looking back at the cross, looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And we have two eruptions of worship in uh, 12, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And chapter 12 is wonderful. We hear rejoicing in the victory of the Lamb on the cross. We hear rejoicing in our hope Rejoicing in the way that the Holy Spirit inspires other people. We have mourning at the evil in our world, but rejoicing that evil will not win the day. What beautiful things 
to place at the heart of our worship. In Revelation 14, we're back with the vast throng, the symbolic fulfillment of all of the tribes of the earth being gathered together in heaven. And it turns out that the worship of heaven is multi-sensory and it's very noisy. You've got harps, you've got running water, you've got thunder. Isn't that wonderful? Kev, wouldn't you, like to have, wouldn't you like to have thunder available? I mean, just wouldn't it be fantastic? I know we've got the drums, but just to have a little thunder button somewhere on the desk would just be fantastic, wouldn't it? Absolutely wonderful. But most importantly, in heaven, we will be singing the new song that is also an ancient song. And that, in a sense, is uniquely Christian. That we sing an old song, a song that has been sung for centuries. We trace ourselves right back to King David writing those beautiful psalms in such totally different situations from ourselves. But for a Christian, every time I wake up in the morning, every time I come to church on a Sunday, it has the potential to be a new song. Because what it is saying is, God is not a historical thing that I look back to with admiration. God is an ever-present reality in my life. So that when I come and sing a song this afternoon, I've got a new song to sing compared to the song that I sang this morning. Because God has shown his love, his compassion, and his mercy to me today. And so when we're in heaven, we will consistently be singing a new song with old words. We'll be singing the song of Moses. We'll be singing the song of the Lamb. We will be coming together to do all of those things. But in the waiting, our experience is going to be mixed. We might love to deny the fact that we live in a time where things are really difficult for quite a few people and where the stranglehold of evil in so many different ways is choking the life of our planet in ways that cause us great hurt. Well, Revelation makes sense of this experience because it reminds us that victory has been won. The act of Jesus on the cross is decisive for all times. The new heaven and the new earth is going to come. Meanwhile, we're like that woman hiding in the desert, protected by God, but knowing that evil still has a hold in our land. It's realistic, but it's not pessimistic. It's hopeful, and it gives us a vision to aspire to, so that our worship now anticipates the full glory of heaven, but we have things to sing today, now as well as forever. Amen.